The following is a sermon in the Preaching Christ Alumni Sermon Series presented by Westminster Seminary, California. This series highlights the Christ-centered preaching taught at WSC and how our graduates preach Christ in their ministries. The sermon is given by a class of 2004 graduate, the Reverend Jody Lucero, and is entitled, Abraham's Obedience, Tried and True, from Genesis 22. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this audio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect and are not endorsed by the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. From the Word of God, Genesis 22, we'll read verses 1 through 19, actually. Uh, 1 through 19. The Word of God, let's give our attention to it now. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! Abraham said, Here am I, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! He said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So far the reading of God's word this morning. May his Holy Spirit bless this to our understanding and our edification. Beloved congregation in Christ Jesus and friends, surely some of you uh, have been at some point in your life at a very difficult place, uh, an agonizing place, an absolute miserable place, maybe a serious illness, maybe near death, perhaps the loss of a job that you loved, perhaps the death of a loved one suddenly taken from you, maybe an agonizing relationship where there's great tension and and friction and hostility. But in the midst of these periods of terrible suffering, it is often the case, if you haven't experienced it yet, you, you will. You will, it's promised you will. We will say to the Lord, what are you doing? How can you let this happen? What are you up to here? Why wouldn't you allow this to happen to me? We don't often know what God's purposes are in our lives. And when it gets really, really tough, we take the easy stuff. We don't ask God, why are you doing that? I don't deserve this. <laughs> that would make more sense. We, we never do that. How often do you say that? Wow, look at all these blessings. What are you doing, Lord? No, it's when we get the, the really rough stuff that we do deserve that we say, what are you doing? Why this, Lord? And we wonder if we'll endure. We wonder what God's up to. It can be a dangerous thing to try to interpret God's providence. When His Word doesn't clearly speak to you about His will, and you're left looking at your life and wondering, well, what is God doing? This is, I can't, under, I can't possibly endure this. And we're tempted perhaps even to throw in the towel. It can be dangerous to try to figure out exactly what God's doing there in our lives. But friends, never, ever rule out the possibility that God is testing your obedience. And doing that in order to test your faith. Now when I say test your faith, no doubt some of us are thinking, well, of course, God already knows what my faith is made of. He knows I'm going to pass or fail, likely fail. He knows. He doesn't have to test me. He doesn't really do that. That's a, that's a charismatic sort of thing, isn't it? No, not exactly. True enough, God does not need to learn for himself what you're made of. He doesn't need for his part to learn if you're going to pass or fail. He doesn't test us to see if we're going to fail. What the Word of God tells us is that God tests us in his love and grace for us. Why? How does that make sense? Brings us terrible difficulties and trials to test us? And that's loving? Yes. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved painful sufferings you see you've been grieved for a time by various trials but peter reminds them what god's up to so that the tested genuineness of your faith gold perishes in the fire when it's tested how precious is gold well peter says how much more genuine and strong and wonderful the gift of faith is that though tested by the fire it doesn't perish but by the grace of god it endures, relying on His Word, testing not 
for failure to be confirmed, but testing to confirm faith, to strengthen it, to assure us of all the promises of God. This is what God did for Abraham. I think it's abundantly clear there from the first verse. And after these things, God tested Abraham. And we know Abraham passed the test. That's what we really want to understand here in the first, uh, in the first place this morning. It's not all we're going to say. In another week, I'm going to treat the next two points. If you look in your sermon outline, you see four points today about the obedience of Abraham. I'm not going to do all four points. Uh, we're going to get through the first two. And there's going to be a lot to consider even there. Uh, one of the most shocking commands that you'll ever find in Scripture. Uh, indeed, the most shocking command you'll ever find in Scripture. Without a doubt, go sacrifice your own son. Reprehensible. Absolutely shocking. Some have called it, called it even absurd and irrational. And from a certain perspective, it is. We need to spend some time looking at this morning, and so we're only going to deal with the first couple of points here about Abraham's obedience. But this is why God is testing Abraham's obedience, not to confirm Abraham again a failure. That's happened. We've seen Abraham fail. We've seen him fall on his face, right? Not holding to the word of God, not being a brilliant, shining example of obedience. But here, where God sets out to test Abraham, by the grace of God, he has so strengthened the faith of Abraham. This is the theme today, if you look in your sermon outline toward the back of the uh, bulletin today, you find the morning sermon outline. This is the theme of our passage. By the grace of God, the promised seed Isaac was born, was given to Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham's faith thereby was deeply strengthened. So strengthened that when Abraham was severely tested here with the command to sacrifice his own son Isaac, Abraham's obedience proves true. This obedience proves true and thereby shows the tested genuineness of Abraham's faith for the assurance of faith. You've confessed it just this morning. In case we're struggling with whether we really believe this or not, let's just remember we all have taken it upon our own lips in the Heidelberg Catechism, number 86, which says, if we don't do good works to be deserving of salvation, why do we do them? If Christ is the one by His work who saves, why do we have to do good works? And the Catechism very plainly tells us a number of reasons. One of them being, so that we may be assured of our faith, of the genuine nature of it by its fruits. Children, that's a very simple idea. We can always say we have faith in God, but God does indeed call His children to show faith in action. It's everywhere brought out to us in the Word of God. We as Reformed Christians firmly believe it that faith will be shown uh, to be true uh, through obedience. It won't be perfect obedience, and we see that clearly enough in our own lives, even in Abraham's. But it is clear here that he sustains the test, and his faith is shown to be true. Well, let's turn now to the Word of God. Uh, again, just the first couple of points here about Abraham's obedience. First of all, Abraham's obedience was tested. Now, you, you've heard me say so much already about that, why, why do I want to draw your attention here uh, to the test if it's so clear from verse 1 that God tested Abraham and called Abraham, go to the, the land of Moriah and on one of those mountains that I show you, sacrifice your own and only son, Isaac, whom you love, slaughter him unto me. That's the command. That's the test. Will Abraham obey? We can 
jump to the beautiful ending of the story that shows so much of the gospel, but to know how sweet it is, loved ones, we have to think about the law for a moment today. We have to think about what God's commandments really mean. Think about the nature of this commandment for a moment. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish Kierkegaard, uh, uh, a Danish philosopher, wrote a whole book on this testing of Abraham's faith. He calls it Fear and Trembling, quoting a passage in Philippians, of course, saying that Abraham does the absurd here. He takes a leap, a blind leap, into the irrational realm of absurdity, of what makes no sense. We listen to Kierkegaard say something like that and think, oh, that, God doesn't command absurdities. This isn't irrational, is it? We can explain this shocking sort of thing away. Uh, we can say, first of all, well, look, from the very start, we know it's a test, so God doesn't really want Isaac dead. So let's get rid of the shock and the absurdity here. It's, it's not really absurd. It's not really irrational. God doesn't really demand Isaac's life. He doesn't make Abraham go through with it. So we try to get rid of the absurd. We try to whitewash the Bible, make it more palatable. We do this, don't we? Maybe we say, look, secondly, not only, not only is this a test and God doesn't really want Abraham to break the sixth commandment, right? And do the detestable, reprehensible thing of killing his own son. God doesn't want that. We know, we know that. He, he says it later in his law, Deuteronomy 12, that the pagan nations who worship their God by offering up their sons and daughters on the flame, this is detestable to the Lord, accursed. God's not really going to ask Abraham to contradict the law of God, get rid of that absurdity there. We also might turn to it and say, well, secondly, Abraham hasn't received that law yet. He doesn't know how reprehensible that child sacrifice is. Maybe we try to get rid of the irrational or absurd here by saying, look, Abraham's surrounded by a bunch of pagan peoples who do this very thing regularly. And indeed they did. The ancient Greeks did it. The ancient Egyptians did it. The ancient Mesopotamian peoples did it. There was child sacrifice all over the ancient world. And we might try to smooth out the absurdities here by saying, Abraham might have thought, well, as horrible a thought as it is, maybe this is what God demands of me, that I give up my own son. And so in a number of these ways, we might try to get away from the absurdity of this command, slaughter your own son, your only beloved son Isaac to me on Mount Moriah. Beloved ones, let's not be too hasty to get over the absurdity here. From a certain perspective, this is absurd. It makes no sense at all. And that perspective would be this. God said to Abraham, with a promise, and with another promise, and even with a binding covenant cut in blood, Genesis 15, where God alone passes through the aisle of slain animals, swearing that through Abraham's seed, the promised son, all of the kingdom salvation would come. God made that promise. Do you see the absurdity then? It's as if God says, I'm going to give you all of this kingdom salvation through this son, Isaac. God explicitly says that in Genesis 17. You can go back and read that. Or even Genesis 21. A couple of times, God promises it. It's through Isaac that all the promises of kingdom salvation are going to be given to you. The land, the people, the great nation, the blessings that will redound to the ends of the earth. And then God says, take that promised child, 
and kill him. Now try as we may to explain away that absurdity. That is exactly what it is. God has promised this is the Son upon whom depends all of the promises. And then he tells Abraham, nullify, cancel them all. Sweep them away with Isaac's life. For a time, Abraham is facing the absurd. There is no question. He is facing a command that doesn't make sense, something that not only is morally reprehensible, but something which he knows God cannot do. What's the absurdity? God doesn't lie. That's the absurdity that Abraham's really facing. What appears to be an absurdity anyway. God breaking his promises? What he's sworn in blood he's going to do? What he's promised me repeatedly is going to happen through this promised son Isaac? Now he's going to cancel it? Well, that might be for a time what Abraham wonders, what he wrestles with, what he agonizes with. Beloved ones, before looking at how he responds, I want you to consider something. Does God command such ridiculous things of you and me? Does God test us, perhaps, in this way ever? Does God command that we are so utterly devoted to him that we obey him to the point of renouncing everything we have, our whole future, our whole past, our present, our future, everything. That's what he commands Abraham to do. And I would like to just commend to you the truth of God's word today. He commands of every one of us the same thing. I don't mean he's going to call any of us or ever does to sacrifice our own children. That is reprehensible. God would never really ask somebody to go through with it. We know this. But, doesn't this draw some of the words of Christ to your minds? Renounce everything. That child you love so much, Isaac, your only beloved son, slaughter him. Everything that your life depends on, all of your past, all of your present and future, just throw it off. Sacrifice it to me. Does God really command such of you and me? Does it bring any of Christ's words to mind? Oh, maybe the words of Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's absurd from one perspective, isn't it? God doesn't command us to hate. No, but he does call you with absolute clarity. Jesus calls us as much as God called Abraham to be willing to renounce everything to serve God in genuine obedience, in total consecration of life. Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And that's why he goes on to say, count the cost of discipleship. Count the cost. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. Count the cost then of being a disciple of Christ who demands of you that you be willing to renounce everything, even those you most love. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, wife, husband, anyone, so that you might love God above all else. God does command the same of you and me. 
We have to face that law today, which in an essential way faces us just like it faced Abraham. The gospel is present so magnificently in our passage today, but we have to deal with that law of God. It's a test, and we might say, well, it's not really God's law to sacrifice Isaac. No, but it is always God's law to bring your whole life, body and soul, with the totality of your heart in holy consecration to the Lord God. He's deserving of it. He commands it. He demands it of you and me. He requires it of us as much as he did of Abraham. That absurd command of God then doesn't seem all that absurd, does it? Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let us struggle ourselves with that commandment this morning. Let us confess how we have failed, like Abraham, to live that life of total consecration to the Lord. You and I as Christians are not called, of course, to murder our children, to sacrifice them in the fire, to take a knife to them. Not to our children, nor to anyone else, of course. But just like Abraham, you and I, brothers and sisters, are called by God to renounce everything. To take up our cross daily, die to ourselves in the world, that we might be true disciples of Christ. It's because God demands total consecration that Jesus calls us to count the cost of discipleship. And so, we are all warned by our Lord. It is a great cost indeed. It could cost us our life. It could cost us the renunciation of everything we hold dear. Abraham did not have to kill Isaac, his only son, in the end. But you better believe he knew in the most profound way that God demanded his whole heart, his whole life. Christ makes the same demand on every one of us. Total obedience, total consecration of life to his will and to his word. Well, we've only dealt there with the first couple of verses. Now you see why this is a two-part sermon. (laughs) But in conclusion today, we have to see what happens with Abraham. It's obvious enough. His obedience is tested, and in the end, we see that God says it is true. Notice verse 12 in Genesis 22. Notice the conclusion here. God finally stops him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. He goes on to commend Abraham's obedience, which was not only tested, but proved true. Abraham's obedience, which was tried or tested, also is found to be true. That's the second point. It's very simple, but I want to say a few words about it here. Abraham's whole life doesn't measure up so well to that demand of God, like us doesn't measure up so well to that demand of total consecration of life and heart to the Lord God. Willingness to renounce everything in our love for for God. We don't have that. Abraham didn't have it. Not of himself. Beloved ones, by this point in his life, by the grace of God, this is the story we have to reckon with today. By God's grace, at this point, Abraham is utterly devoted to the Lord. Now, we can say in a sense of false humility, we'll never do that. That could never happen. That doesn't happen for weak sinners like us. But what the Word of God tells us is that by the grace of God, it did happen. It happened for Abraham because God was a God who kept his promises. I want you to look with me for a moment here to notice that God doesn't test Abraham to confirm him as a failure, but tests Abraham 
to confirm him in obedience and thereby to show that Abraham's faith in God's promises is a true faith and to strengthen it and to assure Abraham's faith. That's what we're really looking at here. You only have to glance at the passage once to know it focuses on Abraham's obedience. Line after line, look at verses 3 and 4 with me for a moment. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He doesn't even tell anybody. The next morning, he's off, ready to do it. Gathers the servants and Isaac, the wood, everything he needs for the sacrifice, and he's off to do it. And then in verses uh, 9 and 10, we see the most agonizing point. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. Look at the step-by-step obedience. He built the altar there on Moriah, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, then took hold of the knife ready to slaughter his son. You notice the staccato here, the progression, the, the, the um, growing tension and agony that's going on here. But what do we not find in the text? No delay, no complaint, no questions, no bargaining, no scheming, just obedience. You can't miss it, friends. It is most certainly the focus of the passage. Abraham's utter obedience. And we can look at it and say, wait a second, I don't have that sort of obedience. Indeed, none of us do. Not in ourselves. But I want to tell you today that by the grace of God, this same sort of obedience, not to say I or you or any of us would actually go through with something like this, as it appears Abraham would. He's actually holding the knife to his son when he stopped. Incredible. What agony must have gripped his soul. But he marches forward in obedience. The point I want to bring forth to you today is that Abraham's obedience proved true for one very simple reason. He trusted God. Faith and obedience are different things, friends. But if you want true obedience, there's only one way to have it. It is through true faith in the promises of God's word. That's what Abraham also reveals. He doesn't only show his obedience, which is tried and true. He shows that this obedience is utterly and completely grounded in the promises of God. Notice verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, he brought a couple of servants along, maybe only to make sure that he, the old man, and Isaac get to the sacrifice. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, you might not catch the grammar there, but in the Hebrew, that word come is we will come again to you. There's Abraham's faith. He looks at the absurd command of God and he resolves that absurdity. He resolves all of that irrationality. He deals with the reprehensibility of this command to kill his own son. And he does it all for one reason. The Lord swore to me, my son, would be the heir of the covenant. Genesis 17. The Lord promised me. This is the promised son he's given me. If God can create this promised son in the dead womb of Sarah, then God can make my dead son to live again. That's the sort of faith that Abraham has. It's not so much that we're to look at his character here and say, wow, this brilliant, shining example of obedience and stop there. We're to say, look where God, by His grace, has brought Abraham so that he can march forward with unheard of, ridiculous obedience to the absurd command to sacrifice his son and conclude that he's able to do it for one reason. He trusts God to raise 
the dead as certainly as God has created life in Sarah's dead womb. You see the beauty of the gospel here, loved ones. The anchor of all of our obedience and all of our consecration to God and all of the assurance of our faith is knowing the certainty of God's promises. That's what moved Abraham forward. In that false humility, we could say, oh, if we're tested like this, we're going to fail. Well, loved ones, that is a disparagement, a dishonor to the grace of God. May we say that ultimately, by the grace of God, He will indeed give us that sort of faith in His promises, that we would be willing to renounce all, as Jesus commands. That we would be willing to say, I'll leave father and mother, I'll leave brother and sister, I'll leave children, I'll leave spouse, whatever it takes, I will love him above all. That sounds like boasting. Of course it does. We want to get away from that. No, I, can, I could never say that. By God's grace, we may say it, even as Abraham showed it in his obedience. Loved ones, the grace of God through Jesus Christ may give it to us to do the very same thing. To have the very same sort of obedience, radical obedience to the Word of God. It is grounded in faith. True obedience which is truly pleasing to God, is only through faith in His Son. And this turns us to our New Testament lesson, the conclusion today of our sermon from Hebrews chapter 11. There's also another word there in, from Abraham, his faith. I didn't have you look at it again, but let me just remind you as you're turning to Hebrews 11, when Isaac is going up with his father up the mountain, they're carrying everything, and he says, Dad, look, we have everything for the sacrifice one problem, there's no lamb. And what does Abraham say? Yahweh will provide the lamb, my son. Kierkegaard just explains this in the most magnificent way. He says that that little ending of the sentence, my son, is a subtle way for Abraham to tell Isaac the truth. Not so much for Abraham to say, oh, there will be another sacrifice. Believe me, Abraham wasn't thinking there's going to be another sacrifice when he's got Isaac bound on the wood and is holding a knife to him. He wasn't thinking there's another sacrificial victim. But what does Abraham say to his son? The Lord will provide an offering, my son. Wow, <laughs> that's profound, isn't it? Abraham tells the truth. This isn't just wishful thinking. He tells the truth. He knows in some way the Lord will provide. And Hebrews 11 tells us the Lord provides. That's why there is obedience in these heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. We've gone back to this passage a number of times. The author of Hebrews wants to tell us there's real obedience in Abraham. And that is a sign of Abraham's faith. Notice Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. See, he obeyed. He obeyed because he believed. Ultimately, obedience is grounded in faith in God's promises. Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac. Now he reminds us who Isaac is. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. See, Abraham was moved to obedience because he had already received the promise, the promised child, Isaac. Loved ones, we've received the true promised child, the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We've received Him who is the true seed of Abraham. And notice what the author of Hebrews says here. Abraham, having received the promised child, was able to know God is true to His promises. 
And so read on with me verses 18 and 19. Of this son it was said to Abraham, through Isaac your offspring will be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, figuratively speaking, and he did receive him back. You notice that, verse 19, how glorious. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back. Friends, Isaac wasn't literally killed and raised from the dead. But obviously, in the mind of the author of Hebrews, what we are facing here is that Abraham's faith is a gospel-centered faith in the God who is faithful to his promises. Abraham proves faithful here, but the ground of his faithfulness is the faithfulness of God, which he trusts. Gospel sort of faith, resurrection sort of faith that says, God's the one who does the promises, who fulfills all he said he will do. He will give life to the dead, as certainly as he has created life in Sarah's dead womb. This is the sort of faith Abraham has, loved ones. And let us know that God does the impossible today and believe His promises. If you believe today that you and me, sinners though we are, wretched sinners by nature, have the impossible done for us by the death and resurrection of our Savior, what's the impossible? That you're counted, though ungodly yourself, righteous in the sight of God through faith. That's the impossible. If you believe that for justification, believe also on Jesus Christ for sanctification. Believe on Him as well that He will give you obedience, that He will bring testing, but by His grace, He will give it to you to endure. He will give it to you to show the tested genuineness of your faith. A gift of God which He assures is true when He makes us to endure through obedience. Loved ones, this too is a gift of God. We don't boast in ourselves, but only in Christ Jesus, who was delivered for our transgressions and raised up for our justification and life. He gives us righteousness as a free gift. As impossible as it seems, he does this impossible thing too, the sort of obedience that Abraham had. May he give it to every one of us through faith in his fulfillment of his glorious promises in the gospel. They are all yes in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.